0: This is
1: The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is The Full Story, coming to you from Gadigal Land. The next Israeli government is likely to be the most right-wing in the country's history, with a new far-right security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, whose appointment, according to the Palestinian Authority's Foreign Ministry could have a potentially catastrophic impact on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In this episode of our global news podcast, Today in Focus, Michael Safi speaks to The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent, Bethan McKernan, about the story of an Israeli politician and of a country drifting to the far right. Here's Michael Safi.
0: Today, we received a tremendous vote of confidence from the citizens of Israel. If you've paid any attention to Israeli politics in the last few years, you would know this guy, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest serving prime minister, facing trial on corruption charges and now set to return to office. It became clear once again that the Likud is the largest party in Israel by a significant margin above all other parties. In a country where politics has been chaotic for years, the return of Netanyahu as Prime Minister promises more instability and no progress towards ending an occupation of Palestinian territory now in its sixth decade, an occupation that human rights groups in Israel and overseas say fits the legal definition of apartheid. (laughs) According to the UN, 2022 already counts as the bloodiest year in the occupied West Bank since 2006, a year that isn't over yet. But this time, it's the man who helped put Netanyahu back in power that's getting the most attention.
2: Many people say to me, Itamar, you should be the leader, you should lead the
1: party. And I always say, the first here is not the story. I come here without an ego.
0: Itamar Ben-Gavir has spent his life on the fringes of Israeli politics, considered so dangerous and so extreme that he wasn't allowed to serve in the Israeli army. In 2020, his sights turned to politics, winning a seat in the Knesset in 2021 on a platform that included annexing the West Bank, relaxing the Israeli military open-fire policy against Palestinian rioters, and pushed for the death penalty for terrorists. He's been convicted of racism towards Arabs and of supporting terrorist groups. His idols include a man who committed the mass murder of Palestinian civilians, and now Itamar Ben Gavir is about to become Israel's new minister for national security. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the man at the center of Israel's most extreme right wing government ever. Ethan McKernan, you're The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent and you've been watching over the past few weeks as Israelis have gone to the polls and returned Benjamin Netanyahu to power as part of the most far-right government in the country's history. The most prominent face in that government, other than Netanyahu, is Israel's new national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, and his rise is a watershed moment in Israel. To get a sense of what it means, tell me about where Ben-Gavir came from.
2: So Ismail Ben-Gavir grew up in a secular family that immigrated from Iraq in the 1970s. His political leanings became apparent really quickly when he was a young man. By the age of 16, he was joining the Kach party.
1: We cannot coexist with, with the Arabs. They are in danger to us. They must go
2: which was basically an ultra-nationalist, anti-Arab, Jewish supremacist party. We have made it clear that we will not use armed violence against Jews. However, we have every intention of beginning the, the settlements and the taking over of Jewish properties in Hebron, and we will use armed violence against any Arab that attempts to stop us. At the age of 19, when he was supposed to do his national military service... He was already on the Shin Bet, on the Israeli Internal Intelligence Services. He was already on their watch list as somebody who held extremist views and was potentially dangerous to the point where he wasn't actually allowed to serve in the Israel Defense Forces because they were worried about what he might do if he was actually given a gun and allowed to interact with the Palestinian population. I think kind of being rejected from the IDF and being kind of shunned because of his extreme views, kind of, all it did really was push him even further right.
0: I mean, that is extraordinary that his views were considered so extreme that he couldn't even serve in the country's army. What does Ben Gavir believe that back then was considered so totally unacceptable?
2: Basically, at the core of what most of them believe is that Jewish people living in the historical land of Israel is something that will hasten the coming of the Messiah. And therefore it's a nationalistic and religious imperative that Jewish settlers go and live in the West Bank and displace Palestinians.
0: After their victory in the 1967 war, Jews came back to Hebron. They built a settlement on the hills above the town, a constant reminder to the Arabs of Israel's victory. That settlement is destined to become a city, Kiryat Arba.
2: The settler movement in Israel or rather in the West Bank. This is something that's been happening since 1967 when Israel occupies the Palestinian territories. But... As the numbers of settlers living in the West Bank has grown, so too has, you know, this kind of political movement.
1: The hill that we are already built
0: on, uh, some flats. The hill behind it, where the police station is, will be built with another 500 flats. And uh, the hill to the north, these are already three hills. You see it as a permanent settlement? I see it as a permanent settlement that, uh, according to our plans, will be a city of 50,000 people living here.
2: I mean, some people call it messianic or cultish. We are here. For very definite reasons, for very definite principles. And I think that once you start giving up these principles, you may as well say that Tel Aviv shouldn't exist and Israel shouldn't exist. And not... for a really long time, it was the fringe movement. And I mean, when I say fringe.
1: Knesset Nikbada. Lechok Yisod Ha Knesset.
2: Whenever the one member of the Kash party who ever managed to win a Knesset seat, whenever he got up to speak in the Knesset in the 1980s, everybody else in the plenum would just stand up and leave. They wouldn't give him any airspace. They wouldn't give him any time. And then the group was banned from politics shortly after that. It was banned in 1990, both the original party and the offshoots, as a terrorist group. But as Israeli politics has become more right-wing over the years, it's now kind of very much a, a mainstream current.
0: All right, and to get an idea of why that's happened, why Israeli politics has drifted so far to the right over the past few decades, let's go back to the 1990s during a period of hope that the occupation of Palestinian lands might be reaching its end. We have come to try and put an end to the hostilities, so that our children,
1: our children's children, will no longer experience the painful of cost of war, violence, and terror. It
0: was the time of the Oslo Accords that provided a pathway towards a two-state solution, meaning a recognised Israeli state next to a recognised Palestinian one living side by side. What was Ben Gavir doing at the time when those Oslo Accords were signed?
2: When the peace accords were being discussed, he was still a young man, he was still a teenager, um, and he was very much at the forefront of the activism that was trying to stop the peace process from happening. So just to give an example of that, he actually kind of became infamous in Israel from a really young age when he was 16, because he took part in a protest in Tel Aviv, where he ended up ripping the hood ornament off of the car belonging to Yitzhak Rabin, the the prime minister who was trying to create the peace
1: deal. Yeah. And
2: he told television crews that were there, you know, just like we got to his car, we're going to we're gonna get to him too. And three weeks later...
0: Israel, a nation in shock, grieves for its murdered leader, Yitzhak Rabin.
2: Ben Gavir wasn't involved in this, but somebody else who believed in the same things that Ben Gevier believes in actually ended up assassinating Yitzhak Rabin. I am very sad... And I'm very shocked for this awful and terrible crime Again, it's one of the brave leaders of Israel. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the peace process got derailed, but the assassination of Rabin by these um, ultra-nationalist forces is definitely, you know, a major factor.
0: And Bethan, what did happen to that peace process of the 90s? And what started to happen to Israeli politics in the years that followed?
2: The failure of the peace process, it was also triggered by, again, somebody else who believes in the same ultra-nationalist creed as Ben Gavir, um, went into a very holy site in Hebron in 1994 and he he shot up the place and he killed 29 muslim worshippers and that also you know had a huge effect on derailing it
1: it uh, put the whole uh, uh, peace process in the, uh, a real danger i don't uh, even uh, know now if uh, this peace process uh, having any chance to continue or not
2: So from the chaos of the, the peace process, which only kind of really got a little way off the ground, that kind of ended up devolving into the second intifada.
1: Unlike the first intifada, Palestinian tactics now focused on suicide bombings, rocket attacks and sniper fire, which Israel met with even deadlier force.
2: And as we've seen really since then, it's been basically a kind of entrenched occupation status quo. But what that means for Israelis is that the more and more invisible the occupation becomes and the easier it is for a normal member of the Israeli public to ignore what's happening in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. People just don't even see peace with the Palestinians as a voting issue anymore. And so Bethan, In
0: these years that Israeli politics is drifting apart as as the peace process itself is starting to disintegrate, what is Ben Gavir doing? How is he spending his time?
2: Ben Gavir ended up going to law school. He made a career for himself in the 2000s and the 2010s defending Jewish people accused of racist or extremist activity, usually settlers in the West Bank who've been accused of violence against Palestinians. He does know the law well because he himself has been indicted, I think more than 50 times for racism and incitement. I mean, he's only been actually convicted once, but he understands the ins and outs of the system. And, you know, he sees himself as a righteous campaigner. You know, he, he, he thinks that what he's doing is ultimately for the good of the Jewish people and the Jewish state. He also ended up moving to. Hebron, So he's technically a settler living in the West Bank. And Hebron is a very uh, volatile city. And the Jewish population living there is, you know, also known to be um, very much in tune with the kind of ideals that Ben-Gavir and the Kash movement the, the Qahannist movement held. So he's evolved into basically the successor of the Kach party. That's now basically what he is in Israeli politics.
0: And in these 20 or 30 years since Ben Gavir was this young firebrand convicted of racism and incitement, now that he's actually in parliament and has some power, have his views changed at all? Do do we get any sense that time might have mellowed him in some way?
2: So Ben Gavir is the head of this tiny fringe extremist right-wing party called Jewish Power. They want to annex the entire of the West Bank they have in the past said that all Arabs should be expelled from the land of Israel. I mean, Palestinians make up 20% of the Israeli population. So, you know, that's a crazy thing to say. And to your point about him changing, Ben-Gavir has kind of toned down some of the things he used to say in the past. So for example, he doesn't, he no longer advocates that all Arabs should be expelled from the state of Israel. Instead, he advocates that disloyal citizens of Israel um, should be expelled. And he includes, you know, left-wing Jewish politicians in that group. Apparently, he used to have a portrait of the Jewish man who shot up the mosque in Hebron in his living room. You know, this is a guy who was a clearly a terrorist. And yeah, he was there was a photo of him in Ben Gavir's house up until he realized that if he wanted to get into the Knesset, other people weren't going to agree with that. He might say that he's changed or he might think he's presenting a changed outlook, but I don't really think that that's the case.
0: Bethan, this Jewish power party sounds pretty extreme in its beliefs. I mean, you covered their, their most recent election campaign. Did you get a sense of who they appeal to in Israeli society? Like, who are their constituents?
2: He appeals very much to soldiers and to the police because he advocates for things like immunity from prosecution for soldiers and members of the security forces who injure or kill Palestinians. Not that they often get prosecuted anyway. He appeals to almost all of the settler community living in the West Bank. So that's close to half a million people. And that's the population that's growing all the time as the settlements expand. And really, surprisingly, um, he really appeals to young people. I went to two of his rallies, and yeah, filled with eighteen-year-olds, nineteen-year-olds doing their military service, or at university, or yeshiva students. I mean, he's he's bombastic and he's charismatic. And I mean, some of the kids at the Israelis, you know, they said that obviously they don't believe everything that he says and that a lot of it, you know, won't come to pass. But even, I mean, one kid said, one 19 year old said, that even if he can get 85% of what he promises passed, that would still be really great. Footage provided by Ben
0: Gavir's campaign shows the candidate being mobbed by a group of Israeli youth scouts who chant his name and crush forward to take selfies. If Jewish power is stronger, they will be able to ask Netanyahu for more
1: things. He will not have a choice, but give them whatever they ask for.
2: I mean, this is a generation that has grown up, you know, without any peace process whatsoever. They've never witnessed any kind of genuine effort from either the Israeli or the Palestinian side towards a peace deal. So I think... He's viewed through a lens for young people of somebody who promises change and he promises to actually make things better and make people, make people safe, make Israel safe. And that also appeals, I think, to the older people who voted for him, people who are really worried about a rise in terrorist attacks this year and escalating violence in the West Bank this year. And they don't think that the last government was capable of combating it. So, you know, they're voting for the, the guy who promises to be an agent of chaos, and I don't know where that's going to lead us.
0: It's interesting that it's young people who are drawn to Ben Gavir's message that these are people who might have no memory at all of the peace process of the 1990s, who can't even imagine the possibility of peace with Palestinians. And so they're drawn instead to these harder and harder line security responses. It's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where you kill off the peace process and that makes peace harder to imagine and pushes you into policies that only prolong the occupation, which is, of course, the source of the problems to begin with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he's a symptom, not the cause, right? I mean, Netanyahu kind of showed him how to do it, really. You've got a whole generation now that's, knows it has to go do military service, often doesn't know any Palestinians in any context except when they do their military service. And, you know, they are a population that they have been tasked with, depending on which way you look at it, keeping order and keeping everybody safe or oppressing them and enforcing the occupation. And again, I think it really is seen by this younger generation as us versus them. There's no way that we can go back to any kind of peace process. So in lieu of that, yeah, it's about defending the faith and defending the country. I think uh, something a lot of people said at these rallies is, you know, we've only got one state. There's only one Jewish state. There's nowhere else for us to go. So if we don't protect it, then it will disappear. So this is it. This is the choice.
0: Coming up, what Benjamin Netanyahu hopes to get by putting far-right extremists in power. Nathan, Israeli politics has been chaotic for years now. They've had something like five national elections in three years and we've covered many of them on the show, including the rise and the fall and the rise and the fall of Benjamin Netanyahu. But can you just take us quickly through the way that Netanyahu managed to come out of this latest election as the leader of a governing majority and how Ben Gavir managed to use that process to elevate himself into the Israeli cabinet for the first time?
2: Israel has had... Four years of political chaos and five elections in the space of less than four years, which have largely been triggered by Netanyahu being put on trial for three different corruption cases. So he did get boosted out of office last June. Basically, eight different parties of completely different political events. They all bonded together over the fact that they were determined to push Netanyahu out of office finally. And they did manage to do that. But because they were so different, they couldn't really agree on anything, which made it really hard for them to govern. And then Netanyahu also as leader of the opposition, you know, he was chipping away every opportunity he could to kind of really exploit those differences. So the government only lasted a year and then it collapsed, triggering this election. And this time around, the polls again said that it was going to be basically about a 50-50 split, which is what happened in the Rest of them as well. But what made the difference was Netanyahu basically midwifed a merger of three of these extremist right-wing parties. One of them is Ben Gavir's Jewish Power Party. This time around, it's mainly, you know, Ben Gavir himself, his real kind of um star factor that he has for so many voters that feel disillusioned with the other parties that has really rocketed them into now becoming the third largest party in the Knesset. So they managed to more than double their number of seats. And Netanyahu is delighted with this because they're basically going to help him get the corruption charges dropped. And honestly, for him, that's the only thing that matters. It's almost like he's willing to let everything else burn as long as that's what happens. These guys, I mean, the far right and not Netanyahu's natural allies. I mean, if you're looking at this from, I don't know, like a European perspective, Netanyahu's already very far right. But Ben Gavir and his colleagues are even more right of that. It's like a far right, I guess in Europe, we would just be labelling them a fascist organisation. You know, they're not his natural allies, and he doesn't like them at all. But um, he basically doesn't have any option at this point. You know, they're the only people left who will work with him.
0: I mean, that is shocking to contemplate that this may all be driven by a desire by Netanyahu to try to find some way to avoid these corruption charges, charges that we should say Netanyahu completely denies. Beth, how closely are Palestinians following the rise of Ben-Gavir and what do they make of it?
2: I think there's a lot of um, very understandable apathy from Palestinians when it comes to differing Israeli governments. I mean, they're all just basically different shades of the same thing to a lot of people who live under the occupation, right? It's not like any of them are going to end the occupation, That said, I think that because the polls didn't predict that the far right would do so well in the election, Palestinian politicians and diplomats are really quite worried about what it's going to mean for cooperation with Israel in the future and for the situation for people living in the West Bank and Gaza. I think the effects are going to be very obvious and they're going to be felt very quickly I'm not sure if people really realise yet quite how bad it's going to get. And can
0: you give us a sense that as Israeli politics has drifted to the to the far right, and as that drift has become more pronounced over recent years, how has that affected the lives of Palestinians? In the West Bank, I know Gaza is a different issue and things are already much tougher there, but in the West Bank alone, how do they experience this trend in Israeli
2: politics? The main way that the kind of hardening right-wing political sphere in Israel gets kind of um, expressed or felt in the West Bank is by the expansion of settlements. I think... The idea of settlers and settlements, it's a very neutral, um, almost kind of a benign kind of term for is actually often a very violent process where people who believe in the same kind of things that Ben Gavir believe in, you know, they will go to a hilltop in some part of the West Bank and they'll put a caravan or, a little shack, and then over the weeks and months that follow, they'll kind of build up around it until suddenly you have a de facto Jewish community living on what is often private Palestinian land or what Israel can sometimes designate state land, but that's a whole other issue. So you end up with um people who are quite radical and who believe that the Palestinians living there should not be there at all. They don't suggest where they should go, but they're you know they will often physically violently attack people. They will burn down trees, they will attack and kill animals or sheep. Occasionally they kill people. And the whole time, you know, they are protected by the presence of the Israel Defense Forces. And this is an issue that has been getting worse and worse and worse in the last couple of years. I think the settlement movement and You know, people like Ben Gavir felt very emboldened by the Trump administration.
0: The Trump administration is reversing the Obama administration's approach towards Israeli settlements. The establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not, per se, inconsistent with international law. I want to emphasize... I mean, he
2: was very pro-Israel's right wing. All of these things um, really meant that the settlement movement and, and the Israeli far right really felt like, okay, well, there's no there's no international bar for us to do this anymore. You know, we can basically do what we want. Bethan, th-
0: this is not just a story about another country. We know that the US and to a lesser extent the UK is connected to what's happening in Israel and in the Palestinian territories through arms sales or just direct military and other aid. And I'm wondering whether the rise of Ben Gavir will have any implications for that aid and those sales, the fact that the Israeli government now has extremist elements at some of its highest levels.
2: I mean, the Biden administration told Netanyahu before the election they said do not make these people cabinet ministers we will be really unhappy with you if you do that <laughs> but he was never going to listen I mean Netanyahu needs a good relationship with Washington but what comes first <laughs> is defanging or um, dropping the corruption charges against him by passing new legislation in the Knesset And then if he has to, you know, make good with Biden after that, then he'll have to do it later. But in terms of actual recriminations from the West or from the US, I really just don't see the US or anyone else in the international community taking the kind of moves that would force Netanyahu to really rein these guys in and think twice about the kind of new policies and actions that they want to impose. I mean, they're not going to stop military aid. They're not going to stop security cooperation. They will probably issue, you know, stonely worded statements about settlements and settler violence and increasing deaths of Palestinians. But I don't think that's going to translate into any meaningful action.
0: Bethan, listening to this, it strikes me that the thing about this sort of endless occupation that Israel has been involved in is that obviously it takes a toll on the Palestinians, but not just on them, that that Israel as a country has been able to secure itself very effectively from Palestinian militancy. You said the occupation has basically become invisible to most people's lives and the prospect of a Palestinian state, a real viable one, now feels very remote. But all of that has come at the cost of having extremists at the very top of the Israeli government. And that itself doesn't seem like a recipe for a peaceful country either.
2: No, no, I think it bodes really ill for the future. And it's such a paradox, right? Like Ben Gavir is this guy whom he wasn't allowed to join the IDF because he was deemed to be too dangerous and you know he's he's he was on the Shinbet's list. maybe he still is on the Shinbet's list. i don't know but he's also now going to be in the security cabinet and they're going to have to share share you know classified information with him like it's it's mind blowing it doesn't make any sense and yeah as far as you know the, the rise in extremism and and more kind of you know he wants to bring back the death penalty and 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 uh, for terrorists or you know bring back the death penalty for for Palestinian terrorists, and he wants to loosen the rules of engagement you know all that kind of stuff um, as you say right means most likely means that what is already a very volatile and dangerous situation in the West Bank is likely to become more so and I mean again I just I think there are so many Israelis who don't really understand that yet and I hope I'm wrong when I say this but um I really don't think I am wrong.
0: Bethan it's such a bleak outlook but I thank you for coming on and sharing it with us.
1: You're welcome. That was Bethan McKernan, The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent with Today in Focus host, Michael Safi. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Axel Kakutier. Additional production by Karush Luthria. The executive producer is Phil Maynard. I'm Laura Mofiotes and we'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story tomorrow.